0: Good morning, and welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. Let's begin with prayer, and we've had a couple of uh, requests for private concerns, and we want to remember those in our prayers. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your grace to us, and we thank you for our opportunities to study and to come to know you. We've had several requests for prayer come in. Some have health concerns, some have family concerns. You know all the specifics and all the issues. You know the best interventions in every case, and we ask that you will take special interest in these requests and bring out the solution that you know is best. Give us wisdom as we discuss and study today that you will be lifted up and your methods will be promoted and lives will be changed. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Couple of announcements to make. First the good news exciting announcement is we will be able to meet again in person in our normal place at the courthouse at uh, College Dale uh, next week June 6 at our normal time 10:20 uh, so we hope to see you there if uh, if you feel like you have any type of sickness and and or feel uh, insecure it, it's okay that you you know would stay home but we hope for all those who feel well that we can see you next week um, Francesca is here with me this morning, and if you have questions on the feed, uh, please feel free on the Facebook feed to throw your questions in. And we are doing um, the lesson today is the Bible and prophecy, which is lesson eleven in the uh, uh, quarterly How to Interpret Scripture. And it's uh, some disturbing events have been happening for those of us who watched. The world around us You understand Bible prophecy, if your eyes are open, you're seeing some events right now that are really consistent with what we've anticipated all along. One of those events, as many of us have understood as time unfolds, the Bible prophesied that religious liberties will be restricted by the state. Yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled five to four that states can restrict religious attendance and um participation. It was a suit brought by a church in California, where California has a restriction on no more than 25% of the membership and no more than 100 people may attend services. And this was the suit that came. And in a decision five to four, the four liberals supporting the law with John Roberts and the four conservative justices opposing it, it was passed. They then went on to refuse to hear cases, two suits brought by churches out of Chicago, where the attendance was restricted to ten people. You can have your services, but only ten people can meet. Justice Roberts uh, wrote that restricting, allowing religious services at a restricted attendance of up to 100 people, 25% of your membership, was still consistent with the First Amendment. However, the conservative justices wrote that the – and John Roberts compared that to uh, restrictions on other businesses like uh, sporting events, concerts, and other events where people attend in large groups – The conservatives pointed out that those other events are not constitutionally protected and religious services stand distinct from those other um, societal events. Point being, I wrote a a blog some months ago uh, in inquiry, why do some people seem to support Donald Trump? And the suggestion I made was because some see that he may be a bastion or a wall of protection to our religious liberties that would be encroached upon by the liberal left. That was met with quite vitriolic hostility from some, but what do we see today, yesterday in the Supreme Court ruling? That the restrictions on our religious liberty have come from the state of California, the city of Chicago and Illinois, both very liberal in their practices, and the four liberal justices are the ones who supported this. And so we now have Supreme Court precedent that it is okay for states to restrict religious practices that's constitutional. And it did not come from the conservative group. It came from the liberal side. Now they just need a new reason that is so, uh, so, so-called beneficial to the society for them to restrict our religious practices. I think we need to be very vigilant. This is pretentious times in which we live. And... If we keep our eyes open, we need to watch not just from the right, but really we need to watch from the left, which I think are really encroaching our liberties. On top of that, another truth um, prophecy of the Bible seems to be coming true right now, this week. In Isaiah 5.20 it says, You are doomed, you call evil good and good evil. You turn darkness into light and light into darkness. You make what is bitter sweet and what is sweet you make bitter turning things upside down, calling truth lies and lies truth. You have seen the outrageous treatment by a police officer of uh George Floyd in Minneapolis, and he was rightly arrested and is being prosecuted for murder. However, in response to that, what do we see? We see rioters breaking in and destroying a police precinct and burning it down. But on top of that, we see them breaking into a Target and uh, rioting and stealing stuff. And, and in Atlanta yesterday, bro- broken out windows in shops and stores all through the downtown area. And what is the response to this? That... When certain leaders call for a crackdown or holding accountable those who are rioting, they are accused by calling for accountability and enforcement of law and stopping the riot. They're accused of violence and violent speech and racist speech. But those who are doing the violence, are, we're told that when they break in and do this stuff, that is exercising their free speech right. That's not violence. So we're turning everything upside down and twisting things in order to promote an agenda. And which side is it coming from? Those who are speaking truth, the officer should be arrested and prosecuted because he wronged and and, and murdered. Yet, these people who are doing violence also need to be held accountable for their conduct those, those um, um, that speech is coming from the conservative side. The liberal side, though, is turning things upside down and backwards by suggesting that violence in this circumstance is not violence. It's free speech. Those who want to hold accountable, they're the violent ones. If you have discernment, see what's actually happening. This isn't really political. It's biblical. It's about character. It's about methods. It's about principles. Are we promoting and protecting liberties and freedoms? Or are we um, are we collaborating with those who want to control by threat and violence? That's really the issue. Go through with our lesson now. The lesson in Sabbath's lesson, the Bible and prophecy... What's the primary purpose of prophecy? Well, John fourteen nineteen, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. One of the purposes or primary purpose of prophecy is not to prognosticate the future so we can map it all out. It's so that when it happens, we can look and see that God foreknew and our confidence and faith in God can be increased. But have you considered, as you consider Bible prophecies, Have you considered the end point of most of the Bible prophecies, the trajectory, the goal, what the Bible prophecies are actually saying ultimately is going to happen? They may have various details that give us more um, uh, details about how it happens and what's happening through time, but they're all, in my view, generally pointing to the same theme, and I want to show you this. And we're going to ask what is the end point of these various prophecies. Genesis 3:15 to Adam and Eve, God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush, uh, excuse me, he spoke to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and uh, you will strike his heel. What is the trajectory? What's the end point here? What's the message of this prophecy? It's the coming Messiah, Jesus, destroying sin and Satan and saving people. That's the pro- prophetic message. Here's the prophecy to Abraham. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Genesis twenty-two seventeen eighteen. 18. What's the message here again? That the Messiah is coming, and all nations will be blessed through this descendant, the seed of Abraham, who will ultimately destroy sin, blessing us and saving people. To David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and who will become who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What again is the prophecy here? It's a prophecy about the descendant of David becoming the ultimate king of kings, overthrowing Satan and sin, and saving people. Here's one to Isaiah. For unto us a child is born a son is given a government will be on his shoulder he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne there it is and over his kingdom uh, and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever again jesus destroying sin and saving people, and establishing his kingdom of righteousness. Zechariah's prophecy about measuring stick, and Joshua the high priest, we've, uh, what are those about? Again, Jesus overcoming, identifying sin in people, and cleansing people from sin, saving, healing them, so that we can have salvation. Haggai's prophecy... This is what the Lord says. In a little while, I once more will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. What is this prophecy about the coming Messiah, who will be glorious and establish his character in humanity and be our Savior? So, again, overthrowing sin. The prophecy to Joel. And afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your men will see visions. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth and blood and fire and billow and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is the prophecy? that a Messiah is coming and that God is going to save people and he's going to overthrow sin to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, for I knew the plans I have given you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. This is, again, keeping open avenue for Messiah, bringing the family of Abraham back so they can fill the destiny and be the family from which the seed, the Messiah, will come. Daniel 2, the multi-metal man, which we'll talk about again, what's what's the ending of that prophecy? A rock with no hands comes and destroys the nations and sets up a kingdom. Jesus is going to overthrow the kingdoms of the world, and his kingdom of love will be established. Daniel's prophecy of the the multiple beasts, how does that one end? It ends with, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not... Pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this prophecy, pointing to what the overthrow of sin, Satan and sin, the healing of people, and establishing his eternal kingdom. Malachi's prophecy: See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The, the messenger of the covenant will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap, refining and purifying silver. He'll purify the Levites. So what is this prophecy? Again, he is coming to cleanse us from sin and establish his kingdom of righteousness. He says "In uh, further in Malachi, the day is coming, I will burn like a furnace, all the arrogant and evil doers will be stubble, and that day uh, is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. But you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, rise with healing in his wings. Again, the Son of Truth, the Son of Righteousness is rising right now, and those of us who embrace it, we're being transformed, we're being renewed, so that when we see him, we will be like him, because we will see him face to face. But those who reject the darkness, those who reject the truth for this time, they are solidifying themselves, and they will be burned up by the the heavenly light same prophecy Jesus prophecy Matthew 24 what's the prophecy about the coming of the the son of man and the restoration of the king of righteousness and the kingdom of righteousness Paul's prophecy in 2 Thessalonians concerns the second coming and the man of sin A prophecy of the seven churches to revelation what does each of the seven church prophecies end with it ends with the promise to the overcomer and the restoration of eternal life with our, with our heavenly king. Prophecies of the seven seals end with what? The second coming, eternal life. Prophecies of the trumpets end with what? All the prophecies of scripture. If you look at them, there's a single story being told. Adam fell into sin. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And right in Eden he promised the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The Savior is coming. And the whole Bible story and all the prophecies are turning our minds towards the Savior, towards his plan, and toward the ultimate outcome of restoration that's the focus. With that focus, it will make so much sense as we go through some of the other prophecies and the true meaning. It will help free us from some of the false interpretations of Scripture that have come down through history because they take the focus off of Christ and focus off the plan of salvation or put on a fraudulent, penal legal plan which isn't the plan of healing and restoring us, which all of the Bible is really pointing toward. Sunday's lesson First paragraph in Sunday's lesson said, uh, the foundational methods of the Seventh-day Adventist apply for, to study Bible prophecy is called historicism. It's the idea that many of the major prophecies in Bible follow an unbroken linear flow from of history, from past to present and to the future. So we talk about the different ways to approach prophecy. There is historicism. And that means basically history flows in a linear fashion and events unfold in unbroken chain of events. But there's also something called preterism. Preterism teaches that prophecy are all historic. All the prophecies of Daniel and all the prophecies of of Revelation have already been fulfilled. Uh, The prophecies of Daniel were fulfilled before Jesus came. The prophecies of Revelation were all fulfilled in the first century. That's preterism. Preterism was put forth by a Jesuit priest named Louis Alcassar during the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was the Roman Church response to the Reformers to try and stop the Reformers' Reformation. And this happened in the 16th century that preterism put forth. Its purpose was to undermine historicism, because historicism identifies the Roman Church coming out of the last kingdom of, of Daniel chapter 7 and 8, being the church that ends up persecuting people, and they wanted to move away from the Roman church being identified by the reformers as this persecuting power, so they came up with this idea of preterism, and it all already happened. It was just talking about the the pagan kingdom of Rome, and so we don't need to worry about it today. Futurism interprets the Bible prophecies of all having a future fulfillment. And they only uh, are applied to the immediate events around the second coming of Christ. Nothing has happened yet through history related to Bible prophecy. And idealism interprets Bible prophecy as symbolic, Everything deals with metaphor or principles, but there's no actual history involved. There are evil. The evil forces or beasts in the Bible prophecy would represent the evil principles of sin and uh, being overcome in the hearts of people, but there are no actual historic events being described. That would be idealism. The Protestant reformers, like Martin Luther and Calvin and all the great reformers, used the historic or historicist approach to Bible prophecy. And it wasn't until the Counter-Reformation that these other methods came forward. The Seventh-day Adventist Church continues in the Protestant Reformation tradition to continue to apply the historicist approach to understanding uh, Bible prophecy. And Sunday's lesson focuses on the multi-metal man, in Daniel chapter two, from a historicist approach, which would then show the head of gold is Babylon, the chest is Medo-Persia of, of silver, the, um, the belly of brass is, uh, is, um, Greece, and the legs of iron and, uh, is Rome, and the feet of iron and clay would be the kingdoms that Rome broke into. And you can see a very straightforward historical application in how history unfolded itself. Monday's lesson documents the day-year principle. This idea in Bible prophecy that when you read a prophetic uh, a prophecy and there's time in it, that that time is not literal time. It's prophetic time, so every day stands for an actual year. And they get this out of the Bible, Numbers 1434, which reads, For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins. So there's a day you're there. In Ezekiel 4.6, after you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sins of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. And so there's a Bible principle, a day for a year to be applied. For me, the question would be, okay, that's a theory. That's a, There's a Bible basis for that possibility, but we need to test it. We need to apply it to some Bible prophecies, and if it's true, then we will see time prophecies falling out specifically and occurring consistently with this application. If it's false, then you apply this and it doesn't work. So let's test it, and one of the best places to test this would be Daniel nine twenty four to 27 which is a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. And it is a time prophecy, giving time when this will happen, and let's read it. 24 to 27. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be 70 weeks Excuse me, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring to an end, an end to sacrifice and offerings. It's very interesting to read this prophecy in multiple different translations, Because if you read it in a variety of translations, you will see significant differences in how it's translated. And those differences are based in the assumptions the translators have when they go to the text. It's a great place to demonstrate how the Hebrew can lead to multiple different English translations with multiple different meanings depending on the lenses the translators have and the biases and assumptions. This particular translation, which is the new King James version, is a reasonable one as long as you understand that the sevens the sevens are weeks, which most of the other translators actually translate as weeks so uh, to test uh, which and I think the King James also did, some of the others will say sevens, and this one did actually say seventy weeks. So to test the year day principle, we need to calculate the total number of days which would be years, and have a starting point, and then see if, in fact, Messiah comes and accomplishes what is described in the prophecy. If those things fall true, then we can have confidence in the day, year principle. If you research this prophecy, you'll find various interpretations and applications. Some applications of this prophecy take the preterist approach. Remember the preterist? It all happened before Jesus came. And therefore, they apply this to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a Greek general who invaded Rome and sacrificed pigs on the uh, on the altar in the in the temple. And I've seen many arguments from the preterists and the historicists going back and forth with the text and and trying to interpret this Hebrew word and this Hebrew is used here and back and forth with all the technical applications. And uh, they never seem to ever come to an agreement. They're always in disagreement. Because they missed the point and it's very simple to understand which way is true on this. And that is what is the purpose of the Bible and its central message? The purpose of the Bible is the plan of salvation. We have fallen into sin. And in Genesis 3, the Messiah is promised. And all of these overarching prophecies, as I went through and showed you, have the same theme. And so you should ask the question in interpreting this prophecy, is one interpretation focusing on us on Jesus and the plan of salvation, and is one taking our eyes off of Jesus and off the plan of salvation? And if that's the case, you can be really confident that the one that keeps our eyes on Jesus and the plan of salvation is the correct interpretation, regardless of all the technical mumbo-jumbo that they want to argue. Okay? And so we can reject the preterist view. It's completely fraudulent because it takes our eyes off of Christ and the plan of salvation. But we can go on to show that the time points will also map out perfectly to the life of Jesus. There were three different decrees given for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but the prophecy didn't say for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but also said for the restoration of Jerusalem. And only one of those prophecies gave them the authority to self-govern, to restore their political authority, not just the physical structure. And that was the decree given by Artaxerxes in 457 BC. So we have a starting point for our 70 weeks prophecy. So, uh Weeks have seven days, so seven times seventy equals four hundred ninety days, which would be four hundred ninety years. The prophecy breaks the seventy weeks into segments. First segment is seven weeks. Second segment is sixty-two weeks, and the last segment is one week. All together add up to seventy. The seven, the first seven, forty-nine days, forty-seven uh, weeks. Seven times seven, 49, which would be 49 years, and it says this is, um the first part of the prophecy said, for your people and your holy city. Well, what happened in those first 49 years, those first 49 years after 457 BC? That's when the Jews rebuild their temple and restored their city. So the first 49 years was the rebuilding of actual Jerusalem, 70 years uh for your people. Plus 62 weeks, if you add 62 weeks, that's 434 days together with the, and you add those together um, with the 7, 49, that comes up to 483 days or 483 years. And so if we go through this, 7 weeks, 49 years, Jews rebuild their temple. 483 years after the beginning, or 434 years from the end of the building of the temple, takes us to what year? 27 A.D., And that was the year when Jesus was baptized and began his ministry until the coming of your Messiah, the Prince. Exactly as the prophecy predicted, right on time. In the middle, and then we're into our last week, and it says in the middle of one week, the last week, that he shall bring an end to sacrifices. in uh, three and a half years after he started his ministry, he's crucified. And at his crucifixion, the veil is rent in the temple, bringing an end to the Old Testament sacrificial system, just as the Bible prophesied. And at the end of the 70 weeks, 34 AD, Stephen is stoned, and the gospel now is no longer simply to the Jews. It goes to the whole world, and all, the, all of the world is included in the promises. So the focus is on Christ and we can be confident the historicist view and the day year app, uh, day year principle actually works. Tuesday and Wednesday, the le- lesson focuses on identifying the little horn of Daniel, that the horn arises out of the fourth kingdom and the fourth kingdom is identified as Rome. And this little horn wars against the saints and their sp- Multiple specific identifiers for who the little horn is, such as it claims God's power and position, which means it blasphemes. It blasphemes. That's claiming God's power and position. Such powers as the power to forgive sins or to be God on earth. Uh, These types of things would be God's powers, determining who goes to heaven or who goes to hell. It uproots three of the horns of, remember, with the beast. The last kingdom, uh just like the ten toes, goes into ten kingdoms. There are ten horns, which would be the ten kingdoms, and that's the ten uh, tribes or groups that Rome broke into. And when Rome finally came to an end as a power, there were ten kingdoms. Three of those kingdoms were Arian, meaning three did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God or a divine being. And those three were opposed by the Roman church. The Bishop of Rome. And they were ultimately wiped out or destroyed, the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Visigoths. It says that this power, this power, this little horn power, would persecute for twelve hundred and sixty days. That would be twelve hundred and sixty years. Does that w- work out? When did the Roman church actually? defeat the last of the Arians and that were actually in Rome and restricted the Rome, Roman church power because they were a political force in Rome. And it was the Ostrogoths, which was the last of the three, I believe. And that was in 538 AD when Roman general Belisarius defeated the last of the Arians and came in and gave the political authority to the bishop of Rome, to ru- rule in Rome. If that's correct, then we can look, did anything significantly happen to restrict the Roman power, the Roman papal power, 1260 years later? 1260 years later, 1798. And in 1798, Napoleon's general, Bessir, entered Rome and took the pope captive, and he died three years later in exile restricting the power of the the papal power. so And if you add into Revelation, there's a wound that seems to be healed, and this wound happened in 1798, and you can see there's a healing and increasing of papal authority in the world since that time, including the restoration of the Vatican as a state by Mussolini. So it also says this power will seek to change times and laws. And the Roman Church introduced imperialism, God's law are not the design laws. He's not the creator. His laws aren't the protocols. They're simply rules. Roman in nature, functioning like a Roman dictator uh, that must be enforced through authority, and thus we have to use the power of the state to enforce the church's rules. And Ultimately, because they are simply rules, they can be amended or changed as any legislation. And so our day of worship, we're going to legislate and change from the Bible Sabbath to Sunday, changing times and laws, seeking to change times and laws. The church can't actually change God's laws because they're design laws. You can't change them. They just seek to do it. And what they did is they changed it in the minds of people so that people came to view God running his universe no different then a Roman dictator runs Rome. But we want to focus on the power behind this horn and connect it with Wednesday's lesson, the cleansing of the sanctuary. The prophecy of Daniel 8 and 9 focuses on the 2300 years. The 70 weeks we just discussed were cut off from this larger prophecy. So there's a 2300 year prophecy. The first 490 of that or 70 weeks was what we just discussed starting in 457 and ending in 34 AD for the Jewish people to complete their mission of being the avenue through which Messiah would come and for the Messiah to complete his mission of bringing an end to all the sacrificial system and completing his mission of crushing the serpent's head, revealing the truth and restoring in human, humanity God's design by living out perfectly God's law. The 2300-year prophecy, starting at 457, takes us down to 1844, and that was the Millerite movement. Baptist preacher William Miller identified the 2300-year prophecy, and it says in the 2300 years, the sanctuary be cleansed, and he in it, uh, he mistakenly identified the earth as the sanctuary and taught that when this prophecy ends, the earth will be cleansed from sin. It's the second coming of Christ, which led to the great disappointment. And in, aft- in the aftermath, it led to... Uh, the reevaluation and reinterpretation of the meaning of the problem. Where do we make a mistake? And this is a good example of the misuse of Bible prophecy. Its primary purpose is to help us have confidence in God once the events have occurred. Its primary purpose is not to give us an accurate future map where we can map out in detail the events before they happen, That's not its purpose. And people who try to do that consistently make false applications or false prophecies. It's going to happen on this date. That's going to happen on that date. There's been multiple prophecies about the second coming being fulfilled with the Jubilees and all this other stuff that seems so reasonable that never happens. And what those types of things do when we try to map out perfectly the future from Bible prophecy, it undermines confidence in the Bible, and thus it undermines confidence in God because people persistently get it wrong because they're using their prophecies for something they weren't intended for. They're not a roadmap to specific events in detail exactly as they're going to happen, particularly on time points. But they are a roadmap for the general, as I pointed out, they all point that G- Messiah's coming, he's going to overthrow Satan, he's going to destroy sin, he's going to save and heal people. They are a roadmap for the general... Points And because then when specific details do happen, like the prophecies of Daniel and the kingdoms that have occurred, we can then look back and see that they were fulfilled and have confidence in the prophecies not yet fully understood. God knows what's happening, and then when they do happen, we can have increasing faith and confidence in God. Another possibility or problem some people have with Bible prophecies, they persistently go to the Bible prophecies and use the human imperial law lens to interpret Bible prophecy. That's a mistake. We need to understand design law. So a couple of questions. As we look at this 2300 prophecy, 2300 years and the sanctuary be cleansed, what sanctuary needed cleansing? What was the problem with the sanctuary that it needed cleansing? And once you answer those two questions, you can then answer, how is the sanctuary cleansed? I would recommend, if you haven't read our pamphlet, The Heavenly Sanctuary and Investigative Judgment for the Modern World, you do so. You can download it as a PDF from our website. You can read it directly on our website. If you live in the U.S., you can request a copy or multiple copies for yourself and to share with others. And we're happy to send them at no charge, including no postal charges. So, if you haven't read it, I'd really encourage you to read this. It it takes you through in detail um, what what this is all about. So, from what is the heavenly sanctuary constructed, if you deal with people who want to be in a penal law view, there's a couple of ways to approach them. One is to ask them the question, how do you understand God's law functions? If they persistently say... That it functions like human law. It's a system of rules, and you must hold the rule the, the rule breaker or law breaker accountable. And therefore, you have to have a trial, and you have to have evidence, and you have to have somebody pay a price. And Jesus paid the price. And if you don't get that price paid in heaven, then God has to punish you. If they consistently want to insist that God's law functions like human law, you will likely not make any headway on the major themes of Scripture because they're in a completely different ballpark. They're operating in a fantasy universe because God's universe doesn't operate that way. They're actually operating under Satan's allegation of how God's universe operates because it was Satan's allegation that God's law functions this way. And so until you can bring them back to see the truth of our Creator and God's laws' design laws, most of their interpretation is going to be warped through a faulty lens. There is another approach, however, for some. You can ask them, other than the law, you can say, well, what, according to Scripture, is that sanctuary in heaven constructed from? What's the material it's built out of if you use Scripture? That's another approach. And if you use that approach, you'll find multiple Bible passages that teach that the temple is built out of living beings, First Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are, and you are that temple. There's multiple passages. I'm not going to read them all, but there's a bunch that teach this, including there's passage in Old te- Testament that teach these very same things. And so that's another approach. And then it, once you identify its people, you can say, well, if the heavenly sanctuary is people, from what is it being cleansed, or well, what is it that contaminates? So, since this doctrine about cleansing the sanctuary is uniquely Adventist, I'm going to read some historical quotes that give us insight into how this should be understood. This first quote is is from the Book Education, thirty four to thirty six. In the building of the sanctuary, as a dwelling place for God, Moses was directed to make things according to the pattern of things. In the heavens. Notice the pattern of things. Many people stumble on this. They think when they read that, that he was shown the realities of heaven. When you have a pattern for a dress, are you actually looking at a dress? When you have architecture plans, are you actually looking at a building? No, a pattern is not the reality, it is simply a pattern of some larger reality. So he was shown a pattern of things in heaven. He wasn't shown heaven. God called him to the mountain, revealed to him heavenly things. Yes, things based on the pattern of heaven. And in their similitude, the tabernacle with all that pertained to it was fashioned. So too, Israel, whom God, whom God desired to make his dwelling place, he revealed his glorious ideal of character. The pattern was shown them in the mount when the law was given from Sinai and when God passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious, long suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls of glistening gold reflecting in rainbow hues, the curtains wrought with cherubim, the fragrance of ever-burning incense pervading all, the priests robed in spotless white, and in the deep mystery of the inner place, above the mercy seat, between the figures of bowed, worshipping angels, the glory of the holy holiest. In all, all of this, God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. Did you get that? All of this tabernacle temple stuff was to reveal God's purpose for the human soul. It was the same purpose long afterwards set forth by the apostle Paul speaking through the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. What I just read. This temple in heaven is not built out of inanimate material, golds and bricks, It's built out of people. Here's another historic quote from Desire of Ages 161. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. Pause right there. We're reading a prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, the 2300-year prophecy, and the 2300-year prophecy is about the cleansing of the temple. One of the founders of the Adventist church, and one of the founders of this understanding of Bible prophecy writes, in cleansing of the temple, Jesus announces his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that... Every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the Divine One. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem, the old system, should be a continual witness to what? To the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they had regarded with so much pride. I wonder if the Adventist membership has understood the significance of the building. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The court of the temple of Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passions and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin. Do you think that has anything to do with the 2300-day prophecy cleansing the sanctuary from sin? Do you think it has anything to do with this? His mission to cleanse the heart? Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall say, saith the Lord of hosts, but who can abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, for he shall purify the Levites and purge them as silver and gold. Very interesting. Notice she applies here, because we'll come back to this prophecy of Malachi, the cleansing of the Levites is the uh, fulfillment of the cleansing of the temple. So what sanctuary needs cleansing? I'm going to suggest you it's the sanctuary of the human soul, which each person is a living stone built together in the house for the Lord. So the sanctuary in heaven is a structure of living beings cleansed and restored to perfection in which God dwells through his spirit. Now, what was the first thing that contaminated the human soul? The first contamination to our souls, the human souls, lies. Lies about God told to Eve in Eden and lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust Result in fear and selfishness. And fear and selfishness result in acts of self-interest, which we call sins. And the acts of self-interest further damage the character, the mind, the body, the relationships, corrupting us further. First thing, lies about God that persist, and we're contaminated today, by lies about God and by the Nature we inherited of fear and self-centeredness that persists in us, and then we act on that, we further damage and contaminate our characters even more. And so we need cleansing, first, from the lies. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from the lies that cause us to distrust God, and free to open the heart to trust And then when we open the heart to trust, the spirit comes in and takes the righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ, the blood of Christ, and applies it to the doorposts of our heart, metaphorically speaking. We get new hearts and right spirits. We're reborn. We're recreated. The heart is circumcised. We are cleansed. We are renewed. The truth that we partake of prepares trust, leads us to trust, and then we have the indwelling spirit to cleanse our characters and restore us to Christ-likeness where we overcome being controlled by fear and selfishness. Let's examine the little horn power now, with all this being said. Daniel states the little horn grew great, but not by his own power. So where does the little horn get his power? Revelation 13.2 tells us the power comes from the dragon. And who who's the dragon? That ancient serpent called the devil. The little horn, according to Daniel... Through the starry host down and trampled on them, yet revelation twelve three says that the dragon's tail swept one third of the stars out of heaven, the dragon's tail the dragon's tail would that be the various underlings and functionaries that propitiate and promote? The drag the dragon's methods. The little horn power sets itself up against the prince, which would be Christ. But the dragon fought Michael the Prince, Revelation twelve seven. The little horn power takes away the daily. The daily is simply a symbolic way of saying God's entire plan of salvation which restores us from sin. The daily intercession of or application, or actions of God since humanity fell into sin from the foundation of the earth. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. We have been under the daily grace of God working to save us. It's taking away God's plan, which daily is applied to our hearts, which leads us to ultimate healing and restoration. It takes it away by replacing it with a penal legal lie. And thus it becomes fraudulent takes away the the plan to heal with the plan to be protected from God, with the plan to have our punishment put on Jesus. And so we're no longer participating with God for restoration of our souls. We're participating with God to have our sins erased from books and hidden from his knowledge so he won't punish us. This is what the little horn does. It steals the truth and gives us a fraudulent remedy. The little horn power bought the place of the sanctuary low. Instead of having a plan that heals and restores the mind, the false system defiles and damages the soul sanctuary and brings it low. The dragon establishes, according to Revelation, the synagogue of Satan. What's another word for synagogue? The temple. And so when we accept the false system of penal legal lies, that instead of the the human temple becoming the dwelling place of God's Spirit and we being restored into God likeness, who practice the methods of truth, love, and freedom, we become the sanctuary of Satan, who become very religious, penal legal frauds who go around willing to punish and burn people at the stake and go to the crusades and kill people who don't see it the way we are, and stone people who don't live the way we do. Because we're very religious, we must enforce our rules. The little horn power throws truth to the ground and causes deceit, yet the dragon is the father of lies. The little horn power persecutes the saints, yet Revelation 12, 13-17 says the Dragon persecutes the saints. In other words, every defining feature of the little horn power is true of the dragon. And who's the dragon? It's the ancient serpent called the devil. And the point I'm making is that Ultimately, the dragon is our enemy, Satan is our enemy, and he has underlings and and organizations that function at his behest to carry out his methods and practice his principles, and the Bible identifies one of those organizations that is founded entirely upon Satan's lies about God. God's law works like human law, and when God's law works like human law, then you practice the methods of imperialism, and you coerce, and you enforce, and you do all of these same things, and that's what the little horn power does. And remember the dragon's power, according to Hebrew, that uh, Hebrews Christ took upon himself human flesh, so he might destroy him and holds the power of death that is the devil life eternal john seventeen three is that we might know him who holds uh, uh know him and the only and his true son um, this is what life eternal is that's knowing God and his son, so if that's eternal life, what's eternal death? Not knowing God. And so Satan's power of death are the lies that he tells about God that we believe. And this is how he entraps the world into this synagogue of Satan by teaching people to believe in a fraudulent version of God and fraudulent methods. And that's how he defi- defiles the soul temple. If those persistent lies about God are not removed by the truth about God that Jesus has brought, then Satan's principles of selfishness continue to grow. There is no barrier to it in believing that we are under legal condemnation and God must punish us and and that we simply get legal payment. That incites fear. The earthly desires are not overcome. The selfish lust, the evil habits. We just claim legal payment. Yes, Lord, but all my sins, past, present, and future were put on Jesus the cross and punished and I've claimed forgiveness for them and, and forgiveness has gone to my record book in heaven. There's no overcoming. There's further corruption, but I feel peace because I know when Jesus comes, all has been paid. It's all paid, 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 paid. It's corruption. And instead of Christ-like character developing, we we, we develop the character of the rebel. Mm. Instead of becoming people with dignity and nobility of character in God's image, we become more and more the habitation of devils, revealing the selfish character of Satan, ultimately ending in desolation and destruction. And so the abomination that causes desolation. If you ever want to know what it is. It's the abomination of lies about God told by Satan and religious systems that result in the desolation of the image of God in man and the destruction of godly character ultimately destroying or desolating the sanctuary or temple of God. The human soul. That's the abomination of desolation. And the Roman power, with its imperialistic ways and coercive practices, was the representation of such an abomination that desolates. And then the papal Roman power perpetuated the same lie about God that the world believes and desolates their souls. So what cleanses the sanctuary? What cleanses the sanctuary? And of course we all know the answer, right? It's the blood of Jesus. But wait a minute. What does that mean? How does the blood of Jesus cleanse? Well, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Where is Jesus applying his flesh and blood? Not to a book in heaven. Not to a building in heaven. Not to some inanimate object. He's applying it to you. And he's certainly not talking cannibalism. So this is a metaphor. What does it represent? Well, historic quote, same person who helped found the Adventist church and found this doctrine of the cleansing. This is out of Fundamentals of Christian Education 378. In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God. Remember, Jesus is the word made flesh so when he says eat my flesh he's talking about eating the word and as and the words of truth come in it dispels the lies and helps build up our understanding of reality so we shift from operating in a fantasy world with satan to a reality world of god where we can trust him and then when we open the heart he pours his love into our hearts. Another quote from Christ's Object Lessons, 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, and the selfish generous. By the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. The blood is symbolic of the truth that Jesus brought, which destroys the lies and wins us back to trust. But the blood also represents more than just truth. Leviticus 17, the life is in the blood. And thus it represents the perfect, sinless life of Christ, that when we're one to trust and open the heart, he pours his spirit out to take the life or the perfection of Christ and reproduce it in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so this represents the two phases of Christ, mission or ministry. In our salvation, he came to reveal truth and win us to trust, but he also came to develop a perfect human character, which he offers as a free gift, which we receive and we get new motives, new hearts, new desires, and we are perfected into his methods and principles in heart, in mind, in desire. This application into our hearts of his character is symbolically taught In the cleansing of the sanctuary, that's what's symbolically taught in the cleansing of the sanctuary, the final removal of all of the defects, of all of our rebelliousness, of all of our fears, of all our insecurities, of all of our selfishness, so that we can stand face to face in God's presence, for we shall be like him. Remember the quote from Malachi, that when he comes to his temple, he's coming to cleanse the Levites. Who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. And this is the same event, the Malachi prophecy, as the 2300-day prophecy. Both are, are teaching the cleansing of the sanctuary. When he comes to his temple, he will cleanse. It's the cleansing of the sanctuary prophecy. And what's being cleansed? The priesthood of believers. Now here's another historic quote, very interesting. Uh, Signs of the Times, April 17, 1901. The cases of all are pending in the heavenly sanctuary. Day by day, angels of God are watching get your mind around this The Development of Character. Whoa. They're watching a legal presentation and our attorney in heaven and they're going through books and they're seeing who has actually had legal pardon and requested and remembered their sin and brought it up before God and said, please erase that sin and apply the blood of Jesus and No. That's the fraud under the penal legal lie that God's law works like human law. The cases of all are pending in the heavenly sanctuary. Day by day, angels of God are watching the development of character. All defects must be remedied. The character must be assimilated to the character of Christ. At an infinite cost, a fountain has been prepared for our cleansing. In the blood of the Son of God, we may wash our garments of character and make them white. So when studying these things out, do you see them through design law? Realizing that we're damaged by sin, we're out of harmony with God, out of h- harmony with how He runs His universe, and we need healing, restoring, recreation? Or do we still accept the pagan view that it's all a bunch of rules, and God's the source of inflicted pain, and we need to do something to Him so He won't kill us? Is it all legal record keeping? If you're asked about the records in heaven, what's being cleansed, simply ask a question if somebody holds that other view. What do you believe is recorded in the records? And then start with the Bible. Daniel 12, everyone whose name is found written in the book. The book. Revelation 3, he overcomes uh, uh, like them will be dressed in white. I will never blot his name from the book of life. What does name represent in the Bible? Name represents your character. Whosever character is recorded there. That's what's there. And so one of the founders of the Adventist church wrote, Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist into the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced on the polished plate of the artist. What do the, what do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern of Jesus? And there's another quote I have in here, but we're running late, so I've got to move on. What is recorded in the books of heaven are our unique identities, individualities, personhoods, what makes you, you. That's what's recorded there. And when Jesus returns and raises the righteous at the first resurrection, will the righteous arise sinful, rebellious, carnal, or will they arise perfect and sinless? What's your belief on that? Well, I believe they arrive perfect and sinless. Arise the righteous. Did all the righteous through human history at their death die with all of their defects perfected and overcome? Overcome completely, totally. Or did they die trusting Jesus? Will they arise with the same defects they struggled with when they die, or will they arise free of those defects and sinless? Will the thief on the cross who trusted Jesus at the last moment of his life arise with the heart of a thief? Will the great reformer Martin Luther, who died an anti-Semite and who struggled with alcohol problems his whole life, will he die, arise as an alcoholic who hates Jews? Or will he die perfect, loving everyone, including the Jews? Then something needs to happen in them before resurrection, so that at the moment they arise, they arise without residual defects, without sin. They rise perfected. And it's another aspect of Jesus' work in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, cleansing the sanctuaries, or cleansing the records. Here's another quote, uh, Councils of the Church, 214. We believe without a doubt that Christ is coming soon. This is not a fable to us. It's reality. When he comes, he is not to cleanse us of our sins, to remove from us the defects of our characters, or to cure us of the infirmities of our tempers and dispositions. If wrought for us at all, this work will be accomplished before that time. That's the cleansing of the sanctuary. Cleansing the hearts and minds of all who trust him on earth, and also going into the data sets, of the individualities of identities of people who are sleeping in, and their individualities are recorded and stored in the heavenly record books and removing all the residual defects because they opened their data set, their heart, their mind, their character to Christ and he finishes that work for them. So they rise sinless. So the big overview. And we'll close. After Christ's victory at the cross, Satan's man of sin, as Paul describes him, or the little horn power, as Daniel describes him, wages a war against God's people by attacking the truth about God. This evil power advances his assault on God's character by changing people's perception of God's law. It replaces the truth of God's design law with the idea that God's law is like human law, simply a system of rules. This little horn power, man of sin, thereby sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. God is an imperial dictator. We need to have something done or he'll kill us. This is Satan's view. Satan is now reigning in the minds of people by getting humans to conceive of God this way. He's an imposer. He's a fraud. This little horn power is winning the war of ideas by filling our hearts and minds with this imperial dictator view of God until the Ancient of Days comes, Daniel 7.22, and gives discernment or judgment to the saints where we can see the difference now. God, looking down the corridors of time, tells his friend Daniel it's going to be 490 years remaining for the Jewish people to be the avenue for the Messiah. In the middle of the last week of their mission, the Messiah will come and end the ceremonial system. He'll provide the remedy for human salvation. But a little horn power will arise after Christ's victory at the cross and will wage war with the saints until the message goes forward, uh, a message from God proclaiming to the world, be in awe of God. Fear God, give him glory, be in all of God, for the time has come in human history for people to make a right judgment about God. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, the hour when we can judge rightly what God is like and reject this imperial dictator thing. To worship the designer, the creator, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. The three angels' message is a specific message And it's designed to turn the minds of people away from this imperial dictator lie about God that has infected the spirit temple based on imperial Roman law and turn our minds back to the creator God whose laws are design laws and free us from this distortion so that we can entrust, open our hearts and receive the Holy Spirit to be transformed, healed, cleansed and have our soul temples cleansed, thus cleansing the temple and preparing us to meet God face to face. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth, for the same message that you gave in Eden, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and you're coming to save us. And over and over and over through human history, you've given this message, and you're giving this message again at this time in human history, that people need to stop viewing you as an imperial dictator and the source of pain and start giving you glory by revealing the truth about you and their character and worshiping you as creator and your laws, the protocols upon which reality are built. We ask for continued blessing in our ability to share this message. We ask for avenues to be opened, uh, for greater opportunities to share and for uh, this message to, to lighten the world so that you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.